a reading from the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took a hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads and on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When a thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at four, the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for um, the 
uh, awesome amount of grace that you have for us. We thank you for all that you've been doing and are continuing to do and for the great and awesome plans that you have uh, for your people, Lord. We, we pray that you would bless the sermon and that you would just give us clarity and you would help us to know you more and know your word more. We thank you for your grace and amen. So today we're continuing our series that we're on called the GCF Vision. The vision or the GCF vision is a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a thorough teaching on it since Greg was teaching at RCF at Wright State. Uh, but anyways, the GCF vision is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore, and we're focusing on five of them. Uh, number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based instead of performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. So today we are starting the final subsection of this series um, that for now I'm calling Having a Victorious Eschatology. And so as such, today's sermon is titled An Introduction to Eschatology. So the word eschatology, um, it really just means the study of last things. Eschatos is the Greek word for last, and ology, you know, it's a field of study. So eschatology is the study of last things. Uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines eschatology as a branch of theology concerned with the final events in the history of the world or of humankind, or as a belief concerning death, the end of the world, and the ultimate destiny of humankind. So that's kind of a big topic, and today is a brief introduction to that. So the first thing I want to consider or I want us to think about, is why eschatology matters, and if it matters. Why does eschatology matter? Why is studying the last things important? And does it really make a difference what Christians believe about the future? I think it does because a person's view of the future affects how they live now. A person's view of the future is always going to affect how they live in the present. For example, if I believe that the stock market is going to do really well over the next five years, that'll cause me to think and act in a certain way in regards to my investments. You know, some people think the stock market is going to do well, some people think it won't do well. But if I think it's going to do well, that's going to cause me to think and act in a certain way towards my investments. And you know, on the other hand, if I believe the stock market is going to perform terribly over the next five years, that will cause me to act a different way in regards to my investments. Neither view would necessarily cause me to not invest, but a person's view of the future of the stock market is necessarily going to affect how they invest. And that's inevitable. I also want to point out that uh, having a positive outlook of the future of the stock market is not necessarily better than having a negative outlook on it, nor is having a negative outlook on the future of the stock market necessarily better than having a positive outlook on it. The, the ideal thing is just to be factually correct about it. What you want to do is be right. You want to be right about the future of the stock market. Positivity isn't a virtue, truth is a virtue. 
And we want to be correct about the stock market if we're interested in investing in it. And we also want to be correct about what the Bible says about the future, no matter what that is. That being said, similar to one's outlook on the stock market, one of the biggest aspects of eschatology that will practically affect how a Christian lives is how successful or unsuccessful they expect the progress of the gospel to be. I, I think like, if a person thinks the stock market's going to be successful or unsuccessful, neither view will necess- won't, neither view demands that they don't invest in anything but it's going to affect how they invest. And what we think about the progress of the gospel and what we expect of it is going to affect how we pursue that progress. And that's important to realize. So having a positive view of that progress or a positive expectation for it will affect people one way, and having a negative view will affect people another way. But nonetheless, the most important thing is to just believe what the Bible says about it. And since the most important thing is to just be, believe what the Bible says about it, I want to point out a few downsides to views that are um, too much one way or too much the other. You know, you could be too negative, you could be too positive, you could think too short-term, or you could think too long-term. And neither of those are ideal, because extremes are typically never ideal. Being too negative have, has downsides. If a person is too negative in their expectations of gospel progress, they probably won't pursue certain things that God has for the church to accomplish. They probably won't pursue them or they won't pursue them as boldly as they should. If we expect God to totally change the world, then that's what we're aimed for. And if we expect God to only save a few and then the world's going to end, that's what we'll aim for. Whatever we expect God to do is what we're going to aim for generally speaking. But there's also downsides to being too positive. Um, Not everyone is going to be saved, in case you haven't realized it. So how positive is too positive is debatable, but I want to just establish for certain, being too positive has consequences. The biggest ones being discouragement and disillusionment. For example, if you think... um, you know, everyone's going to be saved, you're definitely going to get discouraged and disillusioned. Not everyone's going to be saved. And you're going to go through tough times in your life where ministry's not effective and where things are getting worse. And if you expect things to always be getting better, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. So there's going to be consequences for being too negative, and there's also going to be consequences for being too positive. Similarly, there's downsides of thinking too short-term, and there's downsides for thinking too long-term. If you think too short-term, you'll invest in the wrong things. I've known of people who thought so short-term about the progress of the gospel that they quit college or the job they had because they thought, Jesus is coming back so soon, there's no point in staying in college. There's people, sadly, who have maxed out credit cards to give to the poor and missions over that. And they invested in the wrong things. They thought too short-term. But you can also think too long-term. 
And similarly, if you think too long-term, you'll end up investing in the wrong things. We don't know when Christ is going to come back. No one knows when Christ is going to come back. You could think too short-term, and you could think too long-term. If you think too long-term, you could end up missing opportunities that are before you today. And if Christ were to come back this year, you'd probably want to invest in some pretty short-term opportunities. Moreover, regardless of when Christ comes back, any person could die sooner than they'd expect, sadly. And Christ calls us to always be ready to meet him at any moment. So I just want to kind of preface this, um, the introduction to eschatology with eschatology matters because it affects how you live. There's downsides to being negative, too negative, and there's also downsides to being too positive. There's downsides to thinking too short-term, and there's downsides to also thinking too long-term. You want to be balanced. Moreover, you want to be correct. You want to figure out what the Bible actually says. So, in conclusion, not to the sermon, um, but to the subsection, to the, to the, in conclusion, to the introduction, to the introduction. <laughs> yeah, what we think about, what we think the Bible says about the future is going to affect how we live, and we should be balanced. I guess I already just covered this. <laughs> I, will, I will add one more thing. Uh, even though I want to be as balanced in my view of eschatology as I can, and I want to be as biblically accurate as I can. But if, I ha- but if it ends up being too unclear for me to discern, I'd r- slightly rather err towards being too positive rather than err towards being too negative, because I think being too negative tends to have slightly greater consequences. Nevertheless, it's important to just care what the Bible says. Positivity is not a virtue. Truth is a virtue. So anyways, uh, let's give an overview of the eschatological views. I actually pronounced that right today. I've been having trouble with eschatological lately. So I'm going to do my best to present these views accurately, but there's areas in each of these views where there isn't a strong consensus among people who hold them. Um, So I might not get everything quite right. And uh, yeah, it might not be quite right. I was researching on Google and there was a lot of lack of consensus in each of these camps. (laughs) Eschatology is a complicated thing. And interpreting the book of Revelation is a complicated thing. But anyways, let's start with premillennialism. So premillennialism is the idea that Christ's second coming will be before the millennium described in Revelation 20. And that that millennium will be a literal thousand-year period of uh, reigning on the earth. Uh, Some tenets of premillennialism, or things that are typically believed in it, is a, a future great tribulation, a future apostasy of the church, uh, And it tends to interpret all of Revelation as being about the future and the end of the age. Now, I could have, in my notes, written the four interpretive schemas of Revelation, but I decided that was getting too complicated. Uh, We'll save that for another time. But um, 
So it tends to interpret all of Revelation as being about the future and the end of the age. One thing I want to mention is that there's kind of a split within premillennialism. There's two camps within premillennialism. Um, there's dispensational premillennialism, and there's historical premillennialism. Historical uh, premillennialism is what most Christians who have been premillennialists have historically believed. That's why it's called historical premillennialism. Yeah, until about the Civil War. And dispensational premillennialism is a type of premillennialism that developed after dispensationalism developed in the 1800s. So what's the difference? Because um, the difference is almost big enough for these to be considered two separate camps of thought. Uh, but dispensational premillennialism takes the ideas of historical premillennialism and adds a few extra ideas to it. Dispensational premillennialism... Uh, believes in a strict seven-year tribulation, and historical premillennialism doesn't necessarily put a time on it. Um, dispensationalists base that idea on Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. I guess we'll take a look at that real quick. So this is a vision that was given to Daniel, or a communication from an angel that was given to Daniel. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. And the people, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood, and the end shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with them for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed is ended, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So we're not going to get too deep into this because I have three views to talk about today. Um, but the word that gets translated 70 weeks literally means 70 sevens. And most dispensational commentators take that to mean seven years, so a period of 490 years. And so in the message given to Daniel, there's seven weeks or seven sevens, and then there's 62 sevens, and then there's some events mentioned. And dispensationalism, because of the events mentioned, takes that to be an interlude in these 77s. Uh, of an undefined amount of time. But uh, for being an interpretive scheme that prides itself on being literal, I don't feel like that's super literal. But anyways, historical premillennialists don't necessarily believe in a seven-year tribulation, they just believe in a tribulation, but dispensational premillennialists strictly believe in a seven-year tribulation.
dispensational premillennialists also believe in a pre-tribulation rapture where Christ will come back and, uh, and completely remove the church and all Christians from the earth. Now, it's an, that's an important distinction um, because they see the millennium as having to do with Jews and Israel a lot. So in the dispensational premillennial view, Christians and the church will be completely removed from the earth before the tribulation. And as dispensationals, they believe in a distinction between Israel and the church. So dispensational premillennialism holds that millennium the millennium will be a period of history in which God reverts back to dealing um, with Jews and fulfills Old Testament prom- promises to ethnic Israel. Uh, dispensationalists believe that the church age will end and that the millennium will be a period of Jewish dominion over all the world along with a newly restored Jewish temple and priesthood. And I, I've talked in a previous message about um, you know, dispensationalism and how the, the New Testament presents the church as being grafted into Israel. They are not separate. It's very clear in Paul's writings that they're not separate. The church has been grafted into Israel, and God has made one new man. But anyways, dispensational premillennialism holds that Christians will reign spiritually in heaven and glorified bodies while Jews will live, marry, and die on the earth. And then historical premillennialism simply believes that, uh, that Christ will come back before the, before the millennium. millennium. So anyways, those are the two premillennial views. Uh, the two other views are postmillennialism and amillennialism. Let's talk about postmillennialism. So, postmillennialism is the idea that Christ's second coming will happen after the millennium described in Revelation 20. Uh, some postmillennialists hold that the millennium will be a literal thousand years, and others see it as a figurative term for a long period of time. Postmillennialists typically. Um, believe that the millennial reign will be on earth and will be a time of great influence and success for the gospel and for the church. Though I think some post-millennialists believe that the reign will be spiritual and in heaven, but or in the intermediate state, but that there will still be great uh, influence for the gospel and the church. But the lines between post-millennialism and amillennialism are somewhat murky. Anyways, um, let's talk about the, the tenets of postmillennialism. Uh, postmillennialism tends to interpret Revelation as mostly being about events that took place in the first century. Although some postmillennialists interpret parts of it to be about other parts of history, like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and postmillennialism typically interprets Matthew 24 as at least mostly being about events that took place in 70 AD which we'll talk about um, over the next few weeks. And it tends to have a positive view of gospel progress and a positive expectation for the gospel. So the the last view I want to mention of the 
four common views is amillennialism. So amillennialism is a view similar to postmillennialism in that it sees Christ's second coming as happening after the millennialism. But in contrast to postmillennialism, amillennialism sees the millennial reign as something that takes place in heaven and not on earth. So let's talk a bit more about the tenets uh, of amillennialism. Amillennialism tends to have a, be a somewhat of a middle-of-the-road view of gospel success and gospel progress when compared with premillennialism and postmillennialism. Uh, and it tends to, as far as I could tell in my research, I think most people who hold to amillennialism tend to interpret Revelation or the book of Revelation as being typical or symbolic of the entire church age. So, um, there's four interpretive schemas for the book of Revelation, and that one is called the, the idealic view or the symbolic view. Um, and one example of that is that they would believe that the, beasts, the beast represents governments that persecute Christians throughout the church age, and not just one specific government in time. But again, the lines between postmillennialism and amillennialism are somewhat murky. I honestly think that between some people's thoughts on it, there's enough overlap that you could meet two people, one who claims to be a postmillennialist and another who claims to be an amillennialist, and they might even believe the exact same thing and not know it. But, yeah, labels. Labels can be a pain. So that is a brief overview of the four common views of eschatology. So that being said, I wanted to try, try to cover GCF's stance on eschatology. Um, so GCF doesn't necessarily have a set stance of which of these views, if any, you should take. Uh, and anyone can be a member of the GCF and hold any of these views. Nothing related to eschatology is worth splitting over. Amen. Nothing. And nothing related to eschatology is worth excluding other believers over. These are secondary issues. I kind of think that probably the majority of current GCF members would consider themselves post-millennial. Um, but that's just the sense that I have. But the main thing we should each make sure is that you have an orthodox view of eschatology. And by that, I just mean, you know, kind of like we say in the Nicene Creed each week, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. That's what the church has always believed. Everyone can agree on that. Christ is going to come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. But in general, as a church, we lean towards having a victorious eschatology or a victorious or redemptive view of what God is going to be doing with the church. And I'll try to explain why in detail over the next two or three sermons. But today is just an introduction. But I will give one main verse or one main passage for why. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. So I bring this passage up to point out um, that Christ must reign until until he puts his enemies under his feet. And that happens before the end comes. Now you can... You can interpret that however you want, and you can work that into your own eschatology however you want. But we have to recognize that the Bible means something by that, and whatever the Bible means by that is true. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. But I also would want to, I want to point out, I think that any of the three to four views, more or less, well, maybe other than dispensational premillennialism, but um, premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism, any of those views could be held with a victorious view of the church. Um, I'm not going to bother to explain that for postmillennialism, but you could be an amillennialist and still expect there to be gospel progress. You could still expect Christ to put all enemies under his feet. And you could be a premillennialist and believe that God is going to put all enemies under his feet, the church being his body, so the church's feet are his feet, and then to come back and then there be a millennium. You could be a, a, a premillennialist and have a victorious view of kingdom progress. And then the last thing I want to say about GCF stance, and again, we don't necessarily have one of these views that we would say anyone should have, but kind of an idea that's core to our identity is an idea of the restoration of the church. Regardless of what view you take, there's kind of a central idea in GCF's vision, and that idea is the idea that God is restoring his church. You know, God has allowed things in the church to get kind of dark for a time, just like in any good story or in any good movie. You know, you start out with, um, you know, a character that's going to be greatly used by the writer, and then typically they hit dark times, mid-movie or mid-story. It's usually not just victory, 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 victory. And I think God in order to show his redemptive power in the church and to cause the glory to go to him rather than to the church, is purposefully predestined to allow the church to hit very dark times and to show that he is restoring the church. 
But that's been happening for 500 years incrementally with two steps forward and one step back, you know, for at least 500 years since the Reformation. But the idea of the restoration of the church is kind of core to our vision. And we'll continue to talk about that over the next few weeks. So in conclusion, I just want to say two things. Number one, eschatology matters. It is important. What you believe about the future of the church and the future of gospel progress is going to affect how you live and how you invest today. And we don't want to be too negative, but we also don't want to be too positive. We don't want to be unrealistic. We want to be biblical. We don't want to think what we want to think. We want to think what God thinks. And the second point I want to point out in conclusion is that Christ is going to reign until his enemies are put underneath his feet. And whatever that may mean, that's what the Bible says. And whichever eschatological view you hold, I would just encourage you to make sure you work that into your eschatology. But anyways, let's close in prayer and then have our communion meditation. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for what you're doing in your church. We thank you uh, for the grace that you give us, and we thank you for the unity that you give us. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to keep secondary things secondary, and to just honor you as Lord, and to treat each other as family. And we thank you for your grace, and amen. Today's communion meditation is called, The Christian Life Isn't a Second Chance. So I'm sure you've heard the idea or the phrase that the Christian life is a second chance. I want to point out that that's a terrible theology. The Christian life is not a second chance. And it's not just semantics, it does matter. Let's look at Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3. O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me now ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? The idea that the Christian life is a second chance implies that God forgives our past sins so that we can now do what we always should have done in the first place and that things can now go how they always should have gone. But that idea is way off. The Christian life is a whole new type of life and it's a whole new type of relating to God. A second chance would never work because we'd just blow it. We've all sinned after we came to Christ. We come to God through grace and faith, and we continue in God through grace and faith. And if ever we start to think that we've come to God through grace and faith, but then we continue through works and obedience, then we completely missed the point. The Christian life is a whole new way of relating to God. God is continually going to forgive us, and we obey him out of love and thankfulness and out of faith, but not for earning righteousness. So let's praise him as we come to the table.